Chapter 9 of The Day's Journey. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Stella June. The Day's Journey by Netta Syret. Chapter 9. What a sweet garden you have, exclaimed Philippa, putting down her coffee cup. They had returned to the yew enclosure after lunch. She had thrown aside her hat with one of the free-sweeping movements which Lady Wilmot characterized as Whitmanesque, and the breeze stirred the ripples of her thick, dark hair. "'This is only a tiny piece of it. Would you like to see the rest?' asked Cecily. "'I could take you round before I go to see my dog. He's ill, and I must make sure that they're looking after him properly in the village. Will you come with me? Or would you rather stay here and rest?' "'May I stay here?' begged Philippa. "'You see, I am silly enough not to be very strong, and the walk here has tired me a little.' "'Certainly,' returned Cecily, rising. "'If you don't mind being left for half an hour, perhaps? He's in one of the cottages in the village, near the vet, and I am afraid it will take me all that time to get there and back. Robert will look after you. "'Will you come, Dick?' she added, turning to Maine. "'I'd like you to see how he is.' He had already risen.' "'Of course. I meant to go,' he returned. "'Diana is cycling over to Silverleaf for me if you want any letters taken to the post, Robert,' she turned to say, as she passed through the archway in the yew hedge. Maine followed her. She did not speak as they crossed the lawn. Her crisp blue dress rustled softly over the grass. Glancing down at her, he noticed her thin cheeks, the compression of her lips. She looked ill, almost old.' A tumult of thoughts and emotions filled his mind as he walked beside this woman from whom he had parted five years ago, feeling that with her he had lost all that made life worth living, its savor, its keenness, its delight. Five years had shown him that in a man's life, at least, risks, excitements, hard work, and some hard fighting can so soften a woman's image as to make it no longer a thing of torture. On his first return to England, two years after his departure, he had not seen Cecily. He could not trust himself to meet her calmly, and he would not meet her otherwise. Ten days ago, after a further absence of three years, he had accepted with unfeigned pleasure her husband's cordial invitation. Though he could think of her now with equanimity as another man's wife, nothing could alter his affection for Cecily, and he had looked forward to seeing her, undismayed by the prospect of witnessing domestic bliss. Today, as he walked in silence at her side, old emotions stirred. He was glad of the safety valve of anger. That Kingslake had met more than once the woman they had just left with him, he had been pretty well assured, even before he saw them together. Emotional fool, indicated his summing up of Robert's attitude in her presence. Did Cecily guess? Had she left them together in bitter acquiescence? He glanced down at her again, but her quiet face baffled him. One other question insistently pursued him. Had Kingslake's invitation to him been premeditated? Was it possible that— A dark flush rose to his face. Then suddenly, as though recollecting herself, Cecily began to talk. She talked recklessly, gaily, about anything, about nothing. He did not listen. He was thinking of her as she had appeared ever since he came to the house— desperately anxious to save appearances, never once naturally, quietly happy as he had imagined her, as he had come to be glad to think he would find her. 
They went into the cottage and looked at the dog. All the time he was feeling the chest and the limbs of the sixth spaniel, Maine was determining to break down the barrier of convention, which she had put up between them. He would at least talk to her. She looked like a woman drowning. He would not allow her to drown without a word. Better. He's much better, poor little chap, he said, getting up from his knees. Cecily fondled and patted the silken head, which was eagerly stretched out of the basket on her approach. The sound of her caressing voice shook Maine's composure. He remembered the baby she had lost, and with the memory came a flood of wild thoughts and wilder regrets. He moved abruptly to the door, where on escaping from the garrulous old woman who owned the cottage, Cecily presently joined him. She relapsed into silence again on the homeward way, and it was Maine who broke it. "'Let's sit down here a minute. It's so jolly,' he suggested, as they came to an easy style. "'We needn't gallop back for Miss Burton's sake. She's a host in herself.' Cecily laughed shortly. "'Don't you admire her? She's very handsome.' Maine shrugged his shoulders as he threw himself down on the grass close to the low step on which she was seated. Cecily smiled. She felt childishly comforted by the contemptuous action." The long meadow grass was starred with daisies and jeweled with tall spikes of rose-red sorrel. The field sloped to a full, slow stream, which lazily stirred tufts of forget-me-nots in its passing. On the farther bank, the cattle swished indolent tails as they crowded under the shade of the willows or stood knee-deep in the water. "'What a peaceful place,' said Maine, suddenly. "'It makes a funny sort of contrast to one or two scenes I remember. "'May I smoke?' "'It's pretty.' he went on, beginning to fill his pipe. But somehow, as a setting, it doesn't suit you. Cecily started a little. There was nothing in the remark, but she knew that Maine meant to talk, in the sense of the word, and she did not know whether she was glad or sorry. It was perhaps a tribute to his personality that the idea of preventing him did not even occur to her. One did not try to stop Maine when he expressed the intention of doing anything. "'That doesn't sound like a compliment,' she returned, smiling. "'Why doesn't a pretty place suit me?' "'No room for your wings.' "'My dear Dick, you're not going to tell me I'm an angel,' she exclaimed, still clinging to the fringe of conventional repartee. "'Certainly not,' he replied, lighting the pipe. "'The wings are not angelic.' "'That's right. Where would they carry me, if they had room to move?' "'Out into the wild places at the back of beyond.' Sometimes. Cecily dropped her light tone. That's true, she said slowly. And at others? No farther than town. You'd fold them, for a time at least, quite complacently in a London drawing room, provided the other birds were of the right flock. That's also true. Or was true. The amendment was dreary. Sometimes when I was at the back of beyond, continued Maine, smoking stolidly, I used to picture you as a celebrity, holding a salon, like those French women, you know, the charming ones, not the blue stockings, Madame Recomier, Madame de Sévigné, that sort of thing. Instead of which, I ride down to the village on my bicycle and order the groceries. It's Robert who's the celebrity, you know. She stooped to pick a long-stocked buttercup as she spoke. Her voice was not bitter, it was quite colorless. "'There was generally room for two in the salons, wasn't there?' asked Maine. "'Possibly. There isn't on the hearthrug.' There was rather a long pause. 
Maine took out his pipe and knocked its bowl against the stile. "'Do you know, I think you ought to have made room,' he said at last decisively. Cecily turned her face slowly towards him. "'You are right, Dick,' she said. "'I ought.' "'Why didn't you?' "'Oh, why didn't I? Why didn't I?' she repeated a little wildly. Her voice shook, and she threw the buttercup aside with a nervous movement. "'Why is one always a fool till it's too late to be wise? Life's such a difficult thing to manage.' "'I agree.' "'Especially with love thrown in as a handicap.' He glanced at her swiftly. "'Is it a handicap?' "'For a woman, yes.' She was bitter enough now. "'Why?' "'Because the whole thing means so much more to her than it does to a man.' "'Not in every case.' She glanced at him hurriedly, and her voice softened. "'Generally,' she said, "'it means so much to a woman that, like a fool, she throws overboard all that reason, common sense, judgment, urge her to keep. And the ship sails splendidly at first. She paused. "'And after a time?' suggested Maine. "'Oh, it still sails splendidly,' she exclaimed with a laugh. "'But it sails on without her. "'She's left struggling in the sea, "'or stranded on the first desert island.' "'And,' said Maine in a business-like tone, "'with proper management you think there need never have been an island?' "'Not a desert island.' "'But the desert island can be cultivated, sis.' "'Yes, now,' said Cecily drearily. There's no barrier now, except my lack of heart to do it. Maine was glad of the personal pronoun. They were coming to close quarters. Was there ever a barrier? he inquired. Yes, she said with unexpected suddenness. Robert didn't like it. Maine slowly raised his head, and their eyes met. He was silent. Oh, I know what you'd like to say, cried Cecily hurriedly, but it's no use arguing about it. Most men regard their wives, so long as they're in love with them, in an absolutely primitive way. There's no getting out of it. They do. For every other woman, freedom, individuality, the exercise of her own gifts, of course. For a man's wife, while he loves her, no life but his. She belongs to him, body and soul. He is jealous of every interest in which he is not concerned. And because his love means so much to her, because she can't realize that one day it may go, a woman yields. She lets all her interests go down the wind. She is what he wants her to be. She paused a moment in her rapid speech. Maine made no sign, and she went on in a voice that shook a little. And perhaps if it lasted so, she would be content. But it doesn't last, and it's the woman who shipwrecked. Beautiful new countries full of interest for him. For her, nothing but the desert island. Maine was still silent. He was following with a stalk of grass the distracted movements of a ladybird. Cecily laughed nervously. "'My dear Dick,' she cried, springing to her feet. "'I beg your pardon. What a dose of the woman question I've given you. It's the first offense, kind gentleman. It shall not occur again. Come along.' Maine had also risen, but he made no sign of moving. "'Cecily,' he said suddenly, "'we're very good friends, aren't we?' She looked at him steadily. Very good friends, Dick. I want you to promise me something. Yes. Take up your work again. Go on writing. She hesitated. 
Does it matter? she asked with a dreary smile. That doesn't matter. I want a definite promise. She was silent a moment. Very well, I'll try, she answered at last, steadily. He nodded satisfaction. That's good enough for me. I'm not afraid, he returned, and moved from the stile. They began to wade through the sea of grasses towards the garden, whose belt of trees lay at no great distance. Look here, sis, he began, so suddenly that she started, and glancing up, saw him squaring his shoulders in the resolute way for which, as a girl, she had often teased him. There's something I want to say to you. All of us, all of us at least who matter, get a hard knock from life some time or other. And if it's hard enough, most of us go to pieces for it. But I went to pieces once. Cecily nervously pulled the rosy beads off a head of sorrel as she passed it, but he went straight on. You have been going to pieces for quite a considerable time. Oh, yes, I know, as he saw her shrink a little. But this is a straight talk. Now what's the good of going to pieces, sis? It doesn't alter anything except oneself, and one's chance of getting something, if not the thing we want, out of existence. Life gives hard blows. Very well, then, let us go out to meet it, in armor. I want you to get a suit, sis. He paused abruptly. The people who wear armor are not, as a rule, engaging, she said with an attempt at a smile. It depends on the kind they wear. It's the getting it on, Dick. Yes, he allowed. It's a bit stiff at first, but with perseverance. It's a dull thing to fight in, she urged, after a moment apparently given to consideration. There are all sorts of suits, you know, he went on in a lighter tone. A large assortment, always in stock. There's a neat little thing called hard work, which is not to be despised, to begin with. Then there's a highly decorated one known in the trade as ambition, and so forth. Cecily laughed. I'll try some of them on. Do you think I shall ever look as well in them as you do? She added in a gentle voice. Better. There are joints in mine. There was a touch of grimness in his tone which appealed to her. I'm glad you've come home, Dick, she said gratefully. You're a nice, strong person. In spite of the joints, he asked with a suspicion of irony. Because of them, she answered gravely. He was silent for a moment. When he spoke, it was half banteringly, half in earnest. You're going to be the most brilliant woman in London, sis. Do you know that? In your scintillating salon, statesmen shall bow the knee, journalists shall grovel. It shall be chock full of fair ladies loving you like poison. But I shall only admit one distinguished traveler, said Cecily gaily. His face changed. Really? he asked softly. That will be kind. All that he had been studiously keeping out of his voice, out of his face, came suddenly to both. Cecily hesitated. And he will be in armor, she said. It was almost an appeal. She had been so glad to find a friend. His words had braced her like strong wine. But if she must think of him as a would-be lover, if she could not think of him as a friend? The pitiful look which in her unguarded moments had often unnerved Maine came back, and now it strengthened him. "'All right, sis,' he said. "'Don't you bother. It's a tight-fitting suit.' She smiled at him gratefully as he held open for her the little gate leading from the fields into the lower garden.
End of chapter 9. Recording by Stella June.